The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Amen. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit works because we didn't coordinate on that song, but that is very much the testimony of the psalmist here in Psalm 71, singing of, the, of God's goodness. God's goodness, faithfulness, it runs after us. I like that idea. Runneth, Psalm 23 ends with, Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me or follow me all the days of my life. Same imagery. And will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, we're in the middle of a three-part sermon series on the Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 71 today. And this isn't typically one that gets picked in a sermon series, uh, but I picked it because I love the example of David looking back over his life and seeing God's faithfulness to him. And I, anytime I sign a baptism certificate, I always write on there, well, maybe you find one that wasn't, but Psalm 71, five to nine. And the idea is from womb to tomb being faithful and loving the Lord. And so we're in this middle of this three-part series, Praying Through Our Tears was last week, Praying Through the Years this week and next week. Pastor Ben will be preaching on Praying Through Our Fears uh, for Mother's Day. Now, when we get to this Psalm 71, it doesn't have a title. And so a lot of people think that Psalm 70 and 71 are really one psalm, and they really are united psalm 70 three times david is asking god to make haste make haste and let me translate that for you it means please hurry or hurry up lord please hurry and that theme is picked up again in psalm 71 so this is a lament psalm that i believe is from the hand of david and we're going to look at the problems the prayers and the perspective of David. But as I read the psalm, I want you to see if you can figure out what month this is in David's life. And what I mean by that is if you took all of your life and you took it kind of as one year and you say, what season of life are you in? All right, so think with me for a minute. So, you know, if you think of springtime as early in life, you know, you're kind of birthed around March, April and May would be your, your young your young youth, vigor years in spring, and then summer would be your, your young adulthood, and then through adulthood, and then your later adult years would be the fall, and then winter would be old age wrapping up in February. So that's kind of my calendar. It's, it's an analogy, okay? So as you're reading this, I want you to, to write down what month you think by the time we finish <clears throat> that this psalm is in David's life. And if you're so bold, even write it into your Facebook uh, there on the feed for everybody to declare what month you think we're talking about, go ahead and do it. There isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer, but I'll give mine in, in a minute. The other is I want you to look for the, for the adverb that occurs three times in the psalm. It's a pretty important uh, adverb. So let's give attention to God's word. Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge.
to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous days, deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. My tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they, who, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's pray. Lord, these are your words. We ask that you would revive us in them. These are the words of truth. So we ask that you'd sanctify us in the truth. Lord, these words are sharper than any two-edged sword. So let them judge our thoughts and our attitudes and our motivations, Lord. And also as these words are comfort and hope, we ask that you would comfort us again and fill us with hope this day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what month did you come up with? If you take the seasons of the year, you put them into a lifetime. Well, we can see that David is not in his youth in this psalm anymore, is he? I mean, you look back, we see he's looking back in his youth in verse 5 and in verse 17. Verse 5 says that he's, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. But now he's looking back on those days. And again, in verse uh, 17, from my youth, you've taught me. And still I proclaim your wondrous deeds, even to old age and gray hair. So certainly the youth months, that's in the rearview mirror. And some refer to this as the old man's psalm. And it may be, but I think upon closer examination, 
David is actually still praying about the future. And he's asking God to revive him yet again and to comfort him. So that why? That's a pretty important answer we'll get to in the psalm. But he still has work to do. And another generation that he wants to praise. His name he wants to pass on the faith. So here we see that David is concerned with here he started well and he wants to finish well. And so um, we see that a lot in this psalm is that um, he started well and now he wants to finish well. And so I think for us as we think through this, um, there's a lot, there's like four different types of people you might say um, today in the world. Here they are. We've got four different types of people. Those who start poorly and those who end poorly. They don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the lover of their souls as a child or as a youth. And now they don't know Jesus as an adult or as a senior. And then they die without the Lord. That's very sad. Another type of person is one who starts well, like David talks about here from his youth. But he, they end poorly. They know Jesus as their Savior, someone that you know, has grown up as a child and as a youth. They've, they've been brought into the church. But the riches and the cares and the pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, as Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, they come in and they begin to choke the word. And it's like a, a garden that's taken over by weeds and they don't produce fruit that remains and they slowly fall away. C.S. Lewis says the road to hell is always a gradual one. That's a scary soil in Jesus' parable of the sower and it calls for self-examination. Do I love other things more than God? Am I feeding my soul or am I feeding my flesh with the content that's constantly coming into my life every day? You make decisions about intake, intake, and garbage in, garbage out. There's good that's gonna come in and it's gonna change us. Spurgeon was right when he said there's none are as much as much are as much danger as the self-secure, and none are so safe as those whom God keeps. Where are you this morning? Then there are some people, they start poorly, they didn't know God as a child. They didn't have Sean, Sean Norman as their Sunday school teacher or Linda Harrison as their Sunday school teacher, and they haven't had Bruce Wiley as their youth pastor, and they haven't had parents who brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but they came to Christ as an adult. They started poorly or ignorantly. They didn't have a knowledge or they rebelled against it, but now they're finishing well. They're making up for lost time. They're redeeming the time. They love the Lord and they love his bride, the church. And they want to use their gifts and their talents to serve the church and the community and their family. But last but not least, you have this last category of those who start well and finish well. They've always known that they needed a savior, Jesus Christ. And from their earliest recollections, they've been putting their faith their trust in him as their rock, as their refuge. And they've leaned upon him 
from their birth. That's the testimony of David here. It's also the testimony of Samuel. It's the testimony of Josiah. It's the testimony of Daniel. And it's the testimony of Timothy, raised in the scriptures from infancy. This is a womb-to-tomb psalm, and we see some examples of scripture of people that did just that. Well, people talk a lot about vision these days. You know, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? What's your vision? And uh, even now, people want to know, well, what's the plan for reopening the church? You know, what are you going to do when the, when the church reopens? <clears throat> And Kim just said to me last night before we went to bed, she said, do you know what the most useless purchase of 2019 was? It was a 2020 planner. (laughs) And we got a good chuckle out of that because COVID-19 infected 2020 and affected all of our plans. They all went down the drain. And so everything has changed, but the vision and plan of Psalm 71 hasn't changed. Psalm 71 is a personal testimony. It's a personal vision statement, and I hope it's yours. And if you haven't made it yours, make it yours today. Psalm 71 Christians is what the church is looking to build from the womb to the tomb. We want to start well, and we want to finish well, and we want to help people through each stage and season of life. That should be the testimony, whether we're at home or whether we're at work. That should be our testimony. Will there be problems? What does David say? Yes. Will there be trials? What does David say? Yes. Will there be adversity? Yes. Will there be many troubles and calamities? Yes. But will there be prayer and looking to God in these trials and adversities and troubles and calamity? Yes. Lots of prayer. And there'll be perspective in the midst of these trials perspective of faith, hope, and love, that if you look at this psalm through the lens of faith, hope, and love, you see all three. There's a hope that's rooted in the Lord, a faith that is going to resolve, that knows that God will revive. God will raise him up again from the depths of the earth. And then there's love. The love is for the next generation, This isn't, oh, let me just hang out with the people of my age. I don't want to have anything to do with those kids anymore. I'm done with children's ministry. I'm done with the nursery. I'm done with teaching down. I just want to chill out, man. Let me have my little small group with all the seniors. I'm good to go. No, that's not what the psalmist is about here at all, is it? So we have problems. We have prayers. We have perspective. So let's consider those as our outline this morning. There isn't one outline that I've ever, of this psalm. Matter of fact, one commentator said, everybody will outline this psalm differently because it's a hard psalm to kind of break out that way. But the problems here, <clears throat> we can say, are there is a rescue that is needed. There is trouble all around. We're talking about the hand of the wicked, the grasp of the unjust and cruel man, and, and verse 4. And then in verse 7, David is saying that he's a, a portent to many. And that's interesting because it's a word that normally means like a marvel to many. And it, and it could be looked at either way, either a good way or a bad way. Either he's a marvel of God's protection and God's protective care, and people are marveling that, or in a bad sense, they're marveling at, look how much this guy has suffered. 
Look at the magnitude of his calamities, kind of like Job. Has anybody ever suffered like this man? I tend to think it's probably more of the latter. And then in verse 13 and verse 14, he talks about people who are literally seeking my hurt or seeking evil. They are seeking to bring harm and calamity upon David. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. A lot of times in America, we don't experience that as much. But there are people that want to replace you at work or put you out to pasture and leave you with nothing. Okay, boomer, (laughs) they might tease you. And sometimes you become a liability where your pay has gone up and some younger person's ready to take your, your place. Well, David's life, it started off great. I mean, his, his April and May looked pretty good, didn't it? I mean, if you just had David's life of early on, I mean, shepherd boy who kills lion and bear. Pretty good April, huh? Anointed at a young age in front of all of his brothers. Pretty good May. Kills Goliath as this young man running to the battle and hitting him with the slingshot and the sling with the rock and then cutting off his head. Wow, impressive. And then he gets a a sweet job in the king's court playing the harp. I mean, we would say life is good in the neighborhood. Things are looking really good for David. But then came June, and David's being hunted by King Saul now and all his armies because Saul is jealous of the song that was sung by the ladies that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And from that day on, David was looked upon in another, in another light. He was looked at through the lens of a scope of how can we find him to take him down. And so David is basically, from the time he's anointed, most commentators think from the time he was anointed to the time he actually becomes king is 10 years. This is a 10-year season. In his 20s, his whole 20s are a blur. He had a bad summer. He's running for his life, and it's not just Saul, but it's Saul's armies. There's a lot of people. And then when he finally does come to the throne at age 30, and he reigns for 40 years, there's some great years in there. But we know there's a lot of trouble. Adultery with Bathsheba. And it gets worse. Treachery, murder of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. A coup by his own son, Absalom. And Absalom even got one of his most trusted advisors, Ahithophel. Itu, Rute? Ahithophel sides with Absalom. And then David's going to be cursed as he's barefoot and weeping, going up the Mount of Olives. And here's Shimei throwing, slinging dirt and and cursing him. And then his son Absalom will be killed by the bloodthirsty general, Joab. Sads. And then he has another son, Amnon, who commits rape. And towards the end of his life, he counted the troops which he was condemned for that. And he saw 70,000 of his own men being killed by the angel of the Lord as a punishment. David saw 
when he says, you've made me see many troubles and calamities in verse 20. David saw many troubles and calamities. Well, if you think David suffered and some of those problems were his own doing, Jesus had problems and he suffered and none of them were ever because he sinned. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, his treasury of David says about Jesus that from the cradle to the cross, beginning with Herod and not ending with Judas, he had foes without numbers. How many times in the gospel do we come across these little phrases like the Jews plotted or sought to kill Jesus? I mean, you, you can't help but just read the gospels and you just start, you're like, man, this is intense. There, there, there is like such hatred here. I mean, just read John 5 to John 12. I mean, that's where it's just like war. Jesus is interacting in each chapter. They're, they're ready to pick up stones and try and kill him. Or how about Jesus' first sermon? He preaches his first sermon, and they take him to the edge of the cliff to throw him over the cliff. That was Jesus' first sermon. So David had enemies, Jesus had enemies, and if you make a stand for righteousness' sake, protecting the vulnerable, standing with the violated, standing with the unborn, you will, you will come under attack. Do you realize that, you know, we're, we're at, when this all started with COVID-19, we shut the world down basically because from January 1st to April 1st, over 46,000 people had died from the COVID-19 virus. But did you know that from January 1st to April 1st, 10 and a half million babies were aborted worldwide. Just from April, from January to April. But nobody said anything about them. I love that, that we care enough about the elderly to take this seriously, to realize these people are vulnerable. We need to do something. I wish we would do the same for the unborn. And yet it's considered essential business for the abortion clinics to stay open. Even days like today, they'll be killing in Bethesda. So as we stand for him and represent him, that will come with, with, with arrows that will get shot at us. People won't understand us. People will think we're weird. And people will think we were our goody two-shoes or self-righteous or that we are not loving. Verse 9 David talks about now, even as he's, his, his strength is spent, his energy isn't what it was. And so that's part of his problems. He doesn't have the energy that he used to have. And in verse 10 and 11, his enemies realize that there is no one to deliver him. He no longer has the support network that he used to have. And David feels it. You see, the older you get, it often seems like the fewer, the fewer the friends that you tend to have because as you go through life, they tend to move out from you. As a general rule, as I've noticed, is that the older you are, the funerals are usually much smaller by age. That concerns me for our young people because our young people should be making their roots and having lots of friends and a network now at a younger age. And yet I don't see the intensity of 
pursuing friendships often like I think they should. Taking advantage of opportunities with youth and young adults to really invest in a network of friends. I mean, when Job was afflicted, he had four friends that traveled afar to come and be with him, and they stayed with him. They did great until they opened their mouths. And when the gospel spread to the Gentiles, we're told in Acts chapter 10, Peter went to Cornelius' house. You know what Cornelius did? He gathered together his relatives and close friends. And there's a little army by the time Peter gets there. I wonder, do we have that kind of network today where Peter shows up and we just, hey, let me bring all my friends over. Where are your friends? Do you have them? David does, has lost his support network here and, he's, he's, and his enemies are saying, man, there's nobody around him. Let's take him down. And in the midst of this, David is praying and his and prayers to God are inclined or bend your ear to me. It's, a, it's an imperative to God. Be to me a rock of refuge. It's a command to God. Be my rock, be my refuge. And it's interesting terminology in verse three because in verse three, the, rock, the word rock is used twice and the first time rock is used in verse three when it says, be to me a rock of refuge, that's the traditional word for rock. But then at the second time, at the end, for you are my rock and my fortress, the second reference to rock is more the idea of a cliff or a crag or a place where an animal has a hiding place. And so the idea is, Lord, be, my, be the cleft in the rock for me. And then the idea of a fortress is literally an eagle's nest. It's hard to get to an eagle's nest, isn't it? Be to me my, an eagle's nest, Lord. Hide me up high where nobody can get to me. You can't get there without a drone. And they didn't have them in those days. And then in verse 12, David is praying, for my help, make haste. Literally, get a move on, God. Hurry up. Make haste in the midst of this. And so here we have the perspective of David in verse five and six we see that David's looking back and he sees that God has been his hope and his trust. And this is one of the things I love about lament psalms is so often the psalms that begin with a lament, they begin to, that at a certain point, there's a, a crisis of faith and faith begins to root itself in the character of God and the promises of God. And then in seeing God's faithfulness over one's life and as faith takes root, this, the lament psalms often turn towards praise and praising God, and that's exactly what, there's a lot of I wills in this psalm. And the I wills are I will praise you, I will sing praises, because now faith is being, is being strengthened and faith is being applied and he's rooted in God and it's resulting in praise. And so David's looking back, he sees that God, you are my hope and my trust, and the word trust is actually better translated confidence. You're my confidence. You've been my confidence from early life. David has seen God's faithfulness. He's relied upon him from birth. When did David become a worshiper of God? From his earliest remembrances, since he learned how to speak and to sing. It's an amazing perspective. He actually says, before my birth, and literally since I was cut or severed from my mother's womb, verse six. Sounds like the cutting of the umbilical cord at birth. And then we have the adverb. What was the adverb? By the way, what season did you come up with? I, I jumped over that. My season that I came up with was December. I put December because 
he still has January and February that he still wants to proclaim and, 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 and yet still wants to live for the Lord. What did you put down? I'm curious. Well, the adverb here is the idea of continually. This word continually would have been a great sermon title because it's used three times. Three times in this psalm. Verse three, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. There's continuity here. I am gonna continue to pray to you to be my rock. And then in verse six, my praise is continually of you. I'm gonna keep praising you. And then in verse 14, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. So as we get older, we see an example of David not losing heart, although he was losing strength. Yet he praised him more and more, not less and less. This is what we call finishing well. This is a fitness instructor who's a little bit ahead of us, who is a mighty man of faith, who is pursuing God with vigor as the season of life is much later. And yet he still has a vigor to serve the Lord like Caleb did. The continuity is still there. And in verse 14 to 24, we see that David is wanting to finish well. He's giving us perspective. There is work to be done. We see all the I wills and you wills. I will tell of your righteous acts. In verse 16, this idea of verse 16 is um, with mighty deeds, the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. And that can be translated, I will come or I will go. It doesn't matter. Either way, it's true. Either I come in the might of the Lord or I go in the might of the Lord. But either way, whether coming or going, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And then in verse 18, we have this vision statement or purpose statement for your life. It's a prayer. Look at verse 18. So even the old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until. Well, fill in the blank. Even the old age and gray hairs, oh Lord, do not forsake me until what? Until I retire. Until I own a beach house and I go to enjoy it. Until I have a million dollars in my 401k. Until I pay off my house. Until I get my kids out of the house. What does David say? Until I proclaim your might to another generation. That's what he's living for. And so he's taking root that God will deliver him. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. One of the great prayers of the Psalms is not only restore our fortunes, but it's also revive me again. And here he's praying for the Lord, raise me up, revive me. You know, is David up or down in this Psalm? Well, verse 20, I mean, you can't really get any lower than that. He's down to the depths of the earth. But David doesn't despair, although he's in the depths. The Psalm is a lament, yet here is faith in action, and faith is writing itself in God. You will see many troubles and calamities. And the idea of calamities is is that same word for hurt or evil. And sometimes we don't understand why. Why are these things happening? Elizabeth Elliot, who's now with the Lord, she tells of visiting some friends of hers in northern Wales who owned a sheep farm. And she shared about how the sheep are vulnerable to being eaten to death by insects and parasites. So once a year, the shepherd has to take his sheep to to this huge vat of antiseptic and completely submerge 
every single one of his sheep. <laughs> so the, she's watching this. So the farmer, in order to save his sheep from death, he actually has to hold the sheep underwater in the antiseptic until they've been disinfected. And so as Elizabeth Elliot put it, she said like this, one by one, John seized his animals. They would struggle to climb out the side and Mac the sheepdog would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John the farmer would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding them ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few seconds. And as their Lord and Master was pushing their head under, drowning them, at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they're thinking. What is God doing? And reflecting on that, Elizabeth Elliot said, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out there was any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You don't really know why these things are happening to you. Yet you do know that he's made you see many troubles and calamities. So you pray the rest of the verse, Lord, revive me again, and from the depths of the earth, increase my greatness and comfort me again. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, in the midst of trials, he says, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God are more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. Well, remember Job said to his wife, shall we not accept good from God? and also calamity. And even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There was an occasion once where Martin Luther was doing family devotions, which, out of which came table talk, the idea of, of that from R.C. Sproul's devotional, because he would have these table devotions. And one of the devotions, these table talks, Martin Luther, with his family, they read the account of Genesis 22, which is Abraham being commanded to offer up Isaac, his son. And Katie, Katie Von Bohr, his wife, said, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. And Luther said, but Katie, he did. That really happened. You see, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Maybe not right now, but that's a promise that you can take to the bank. You see, younger people, you have to remember that older people have a unique perspective. They've seen God's faithfulness much longer than you have. It's wonderful to be around people that have been that have walked the miles, that have walked hand in hand with God, the stories they have to tell of God's hand in provision, and you learn from them. 
I remember one time there was a funeral in our church and nobody was there to receive the body. That every living relative of this person was dead and nobody was there at the funeral home. And Tom Parker, he taught me something. He made sure there was a little army. Several of us were there because he knew this life was important. This was a member of our church. And he knew how important funerals were. And I learned from him that we got to be there because this is a life that's important. And though nobody was there, we showed value to that life and testified to this woman. You see, we're always only one generation away from forgetting about God. Have you ever heard that expression, the church is always just one generation away from extinction? It's true and it isn't true. I mean, God has promised that his church will always exist. But the idea is from Judges chapter 2. And the idea is that this idea of being older and longing to love and pass on the truth to the, gener- to the next generation, that's what covenantal church is all about. And so in Judges chapter 2, what happened was the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the, that the Lord had done for Israel. So far, so good. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. They buried him. And it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then it says this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What happened? It wasn't being passed on. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. They provoked the Lord to, to, to anger. They abandoned the Lord. And then it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And it ends with, and they were in terrible distress. Like you think, oh, this is going to be good. They're just going to leave God behind and pursue the good life. Really? And they were in terrible distress. And many are the sorrows of the wicked, we are told. It's not a better life. And so they're in terrible distress, and God raised up judges for them. What we need is Psalm 78 Christians and Psalm 71 Christians. Psalm 78 says, Our fathers have told us that we will not hide them from their children, but telling to the coming generation the glorious deeds of of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might come, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. So we're talking about grandchildren and great-grandchildren that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's the kind of faith that we're looking to pass on for generations to come, much longer than coronavirus will be around. I want to close with a womb-to-tomb story this morning. Many of you are probably familiar with the story, the true story of the martyr Polycarp. Polycarp, according to early church fathers Irenaeus and Tertullian, They tell us that the Apostle John himself discipled Polycarp. Now, now Polycarp was executed in February 
156 AD. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was brought to trial in front of an angry mob and the Roman proconsul asked Polycarp to just confess that Caesar is Lord and to offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue. And he was threatened to be thrown to the lions if he refused to do so. And the famous line was that they were hounding him for was that Polycarp had declared himself a Christian. Polycarp had declared himself a Christian. And they began to mock him. And when he was taken to the arena, the city officials pleaded with him to make a gesture of homage because they liked him and they knew he was a man of reputation and age. He's 86 years old at this time. He's no young guy. And they said to him, they pleaded, what what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and burning incense and saving yourself? And Polycarp's finest moment was his reply. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And his dying words were, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And with that, they were ordered to run and get flames. They were going to send him to the lions, but instead they burned him at the stake. May we have the faith to press on, to finish well like that. By his grace, let's pray. Lord, we know that the longer that we live, the more troubles and calamities that we will see. But Lord, we will also see more of your faithfulness and righteousness being displayed in your faithfulness. We ask that you'd revive us again, that we would not shrink back or go into hibernation or endless vacation. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to proclaim your goodness and your greatness to our children and to children not yet born. We ask that you'd fill us anew with faith with hope, and with love, so that Jesus is honored by our lives to the end of our days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.